HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60% of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide microgrants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate at jamesbeard.org relief. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chef and restaurateur Michael McCarty of Michael's in Santa Monica, New York City. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Michael about the secret to the long game in the restaurant business, coping with crises, the making of California cuisine, and we'll hear Michael's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. First, a disclaimer. HRN Studio is temporarily closed, so we're recording this episode remotely. May sound a little different than usual, but we're grateful to have technology that allows the show to go on. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. The world is still grappling with the dire consequences of COVID-19. Our hearts go out to all that are suffering with the virus, to those who have lost loved ones, including those in the food industry mourning the loss of acclaimed chef Floyd Cardoz, and to everyone who has lost their job or livelihood as a result of the sudden shutdowns. As mentioned in the last episode, Julia also lived through some very difficult moments in history, 
including World War II and its aftermath. Yet, through it all, she remained an optimist. It's inspiring to us that in this time of self-isolation, forced solitude, the many people that many people are turning to Julia for comfort. Well, virtual Julia. At the foundation, we're very gratified to see that even a simple cooking lesson from Julia still has the power to not only distract, but even to soothe. Julia would be very happy to hear that she continues to teach, make people happy, and provide support in the kitchen when they need it most. Someone who is also pretty darn good at inspiring others through cooking is veteran top chef and restaurateur Michael McCarty. There are few other chefs and restaurateurs who have provided more innovation and leadership in the restaurant world than Michael. Considered a founder of California Cuisine, the market-driven casual but refined dining he pioneered at Michael's in Santa Monica, California, some 40-plus years ago when he was just a mere child, his work helped spur on the food revolution, which Julia sparked. Beyond his influence in shaping what American food could and should be, Michael and Michael's have birthed a long list of some of America's top chefs, including Jonathan Waxman, Nancy Silverton, Brooke Williamson, Sang Yoon, Mark Peel, and most recently, Miles Thompson. He joins us today to, sh- to share his secrets to surviving the turbulent restaurant world and how Michael's has managed to turn out so many top chefs. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Todd, very much. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you coming on. So before we turn our attention to the pandemic, I wanted to ask you a more broad question about endurance, because that, I think, is already part of your story, and it also seems relevant today as we look at uh, the time frame, the unknown timeframes to come. And I also wanted to say that, you know, if a restaurant lasts 10 years, that's beating the odds. People pat you on the back for that. So how on earth have you managed to keep Michael's going in two major cities, thousands of miles apart, for more than 40 years? Well, it's been a great ride, and I hope it continues. Uh, when I when I opened Michael's uh, Santa Monica in 1978 is when I built it. We opened in actually April 22nd. Next month will be our 41st year. Uh, I was uh, 25 years old when I was building the restaurant, and I r- instantly realized that the dynamic was going to be different than my years in Paris in uh, knowing all of the restaurants and the traditions of how the restaurants run and how the back of the house and the front of the house run. And I I realized very soon that, first of all, we did not have uh, hotel and restaurant schools here. Um, A a career as a chef was not something which uh, existed really for young Americans. Uh, It had just begun to start in a few areas because of Julia was a big part of that. She sort of began to spread the word of France and French cooking. And by the way, French cooking at the time was the Latin of the of the food world. You know, Italian food, Italian food was terrible. I mean, you know, you had northern Italian, you had southern Italian. We hadn't even heard from Spain yet or Portugal or anywhere else. Scandinavia, England, recall. So it was it was new times. It was a pioneering um, Wild West. But the most important point is you ask, why have I been able to continue this? I realized very early on that at my age and the young Americans that were being that, that had heard about my restaurant and were flocking in the back door to come to work for this sort of, you know, the opposite of a dirty dozen. We were beginning the first dirty dozen um, was that I had to look at my kitchen and my restaurant as a school and that I would get a freshman class every year. 
Maybe some would stay for sophomore, some would stay for junior, some would stay for senior, some would come back and do grad work. You know, maybe I would get time out of people. But I realized that gone were the days where, oh, I've worked in this restaurant for 40 years. I've been here for 30 years because that didn't even register with me, except for that it was an impossibility. So first of all, what I did was I started this, the, the restaurant. I looked at it as a school and I created training programs in the front and the back of the house. We, we, we tore apart everything. We tore apart the, the forms of service that were existing, the way that the kitchens were run compared to France. Remember, as I said, France was the gold standard at the time. The French cooking kitchens, for better or worse, that was the way things were run. And I always use this term when people come to work for me. I said, I want you to look at Michael's as, as the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, I need you to tell me, I need you to know that this is the way we do it and what can we, what can we do? To make it better. And that's the second part of the question. So always having the training programs in place was evolution. Change is good. The word was out. I told all my staff all the time that we're totally into change, but it's got to be evolution. It can't be mutation. If we're going to make a change, a collaborative change, uh, it has to be better than the system that we're dealing with today, whether it's a dish in the kitchen or it's a service point, whatever. So those are the two things. And I will say that if if you go over the years, the key part of training people is that they then train the next generation. And my job basically was like chief cook and bottle washer. I sort of was the producer, the director. Uh, I wrote the screenplay, so to speak. Uh, and, 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 and that combination is what's kept us going. And as the years went on, it wasn't just Michael's Restaurant on their resume. Finally, eight or nine years into this, I started to get resumes from chefs and servers that had worked in other restaurants for Americans that had begun the process throughout the United States. So it, it was it's still fascinating. Uh, it's a little different now. I mean, there's probably 30 restaurants in a neighborhood, whereas there were eight in the entire city of L.A. that people would go to. So that's where we are. And we continue to do that. So I, I think you're saying that kind of this idea that you very early on had the idea of the restaurant as being evolutionary. And I guess the difference with most restaurants and particularly going back 40 years was they were very specific chef dependent. And do you think that was just a formula that you figured out worked for you, but then also had the ability to increase longevity? Well, yes, because I set out to make a change. I set out to say, okay, I'm not going to do a French restaurant. I'm not going to build a restaurant with the way they physically look. For example, in those days, if you went to 98% of the restaurants, you would go inside at lunch hour and the interior, there were all the curtains that blocked it off from the outside. There were no windows outside. It was a total, remember, it was all Europeans that were involved in this business. And they must have been all Northern Europeans because they didn't figure out the Mediterranean at that time visually. But the truth is, is that if you went into Perino's or Chasen's or Mamezon or you went into any of these restaurants, except for Mamezon, you would go in and it was dark. Same in New York City, uh, Le Caravelle, every single restaurant, Le Côte Basque. You would go in, the windows were covered, and it was a dark environment with the uh, banquettes, the leather banquettes. You know. So what I set out to do was like, okay, that's one part of it. I'm also going to change the music. 
we're going to put in modern jazz. You know, we're going to really get some great music in there. We're going to put in real art. We're not going to put posters or nothing and, you know, cobweb mirrors kind of a thing. No. So we, 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 we approached it from many different angles to make this a piece of art that covered many different categories of the restaurant business. And those became the gold standards for a lot of modern restaurants opening up uh, after that. But I have to say, because I've heard your responses to these questions before, but all of that explains why you were sort of different and maybe a sensation at the beginning. But it doesn't explain, let's say, the last 20 years of... Well, right. That That is where... That is the, the last 20 years has been riding the wave. You know, we're, we live in Malibu, so surfing is a big deal here. And riding the wave. <laughs> I grew up in New York and actually we body surfed in Rhode Island. <laughs> Which is not lovely, that I could right? get not that I could get there today because I think they're quarantining New Yorkers from going to Rhode Island. But I heard you have to have a Rhode Island license plate to get into Rhode that's, Island. That's that's it. But so the point is, is that you're constantly getting a new wave. There's a lot of similarities, but there's new things every time they come around the corner. Well, it's the same thing with employees. It's the same thing with communication. With the Internet, the vast power of, of, of sharing every different kind of thing, whether it's food, whether it's the way we operate, uh, has become... Uh, so rapid fire and, and look look when 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 I, when Julia and I started the American Institute of Wine and Food in 1979 80 I think it was um, along with Dick Graff and Robert Mondavi and uh, uh, Richard Sanford and Tecla and it, it was it was it was quite a moment there and the whole idea was to say okay how do we turn gastronomy into an art form pull it out of the home ec department in junior high schools and create it as an art form, something that would be well-regarded in any university situation, which of course that's happened. So when you go, in those days, it was like so primitive. And in the last 20 years, it's again, it's a function of people. It's all about the people, which is why you see, uh, you always see restaurateurs saying, I can't do this by myself. It's I've surrounded myself with these fantastic people. It's the sharing of ideas. And the internet has been extremely explosive in this. It's sort of the coronavirus of the food world in, a, in an odd way. It's spread so rapidly. It's gone all over the world in a good way, fortunately. Uh, and and so, so that's it. We constantly are reexamining how we operate. And that's it. It's, uh, it, it's, it's that fundamental. And do you think it's obviously one of the things that if if you're someone who's been to either of Michael's over the years and something you talk about is the service, do you, do you think that it's also that you have this very comprehensive vision that all of it mattered, that the chef mattered, the food mattered, the environment mattered, and the way people were treated mattered? Is, is that also a big part, you think, of your secret sauce? There is no question about it that hospitality, the way we take care of our customers, is probably the single most significant aspect of longevity. Um, you know, we we we've we did a GoFundMe for Michael's New York City, and uh, we basically raised a hundred grand in seven days for our employees. 
And that, if if you go down the list, and you will, you I could assign table numbers to everybody who made a donation, because they're that regular. And and that is, that is, you know, you're a hundred percent correct. The hospitality aspect is what creates longevity. As again, going back to the internet, as the world becomes so huge, and it's in your face, and you know, it's it's. You're, you're, you're on a device versus human contact. People come, they have their table, they know where they are, they know half the people in the room. Even if they don't know half the people in the room, personally, they know who they are. So it's, it's I hate to call it a love fest, but that's what I used to call it back in the good old days. Uh, and, and that's what it's like. It's like having a party every night. And, uh, and in the case of New York, it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In the case of Santa Monica, before all this, our, our our lounge and bar crowd was so embraced by our local neighborhood. You know, L.A. was never a walking town. Well, it's become that. In Santa Monica in particular, near us, in our 10-square block area, our crowd, you know, tripled in the last 18 months when we launched this entire sort of great lounge, great bar, and the restaurant with the outdoor garden, et cetera. And so, you know... It is. I mean, hospitality is a word which ironically has the same root as hospital. So every everybody is sort of in this together now in an odd way. And uh, we can't wait to get. And I know that if you spoke to any of my colleagues in this business, that's the joy. That's the real joy. Besides creating things, et cetera, like cool dishes and stuff like that, is taking care of people, giving them the fantastic service and the experience. I always said that Michael's is always about the entire experience, not just about the food. It's not just about the service, not just about the decor. It's not just about the art or the music. It's about the people. Uh, uh, In fact, that's one of my slogans. If you look at my cookbook, it's uh, great people, great party, uh, uh, great drinks, great wine. It's all about the great, but it's all about the great party. And uh, it's hard to consider that today under these circumstances, but we're not going to go away from this. This is only going to get better. Uh, well, that, and, that's and, what and I, I wanted to ask you that. I, I mean, first, I, I wanted to hear, so Michael's in Santa Monica is closed. Are you closed in New York as well? We were, both governors uh, issued the, the decrees closing all restaurants two weeks ago. And so what's the impact been on your staff? And Oh, it's all- devastating. I mean, we've, we, we, like every restaurant, has laid off their staff. Uh, we've urged them to immediately seek unemployment. Um, the bill that just passed was signed in on Friday night or, um, is extremely good, uh, and it's an improvement on the normal unemployment benefits. Uh, they waive the seven days uh, requirement, um, and they also are giving an additional 600 bucks a week on top of the uh, unemployment normal benefit, which does not, this is a very important thing. The government has specified funds for those unemployment payments, which normally would come out of the restaurant's unemployment reserve. Uh, but the second most important thing, or actually the most important thing in this uh, uh, bill is, is that these, the government has, has, this is the SBA 7A program, has said that we will pay your payroll for your employees for two and a half months. They do not have to come to work because they can't obviously, but they can collect this additional 
uh, amount, which is the average of what they made over the weeks. And this is extraordinary. This is a very, very, very big thing because it does what it's supposed to do, which is to get money into the pockets of the employees who can then go right down the trickle down and put it into the economy. Uh, so it's a big deal right now. Now, it's still sorting itself out. Here we are Monday. Uh, and uh, it changes hourly and daily, but uh, everybody's in this together. Yeah. And what what have you heard? I mean, that was actually a great overview. And it sounds like from your perspective as a veteran restaurateur, you're pretty excited and optimistic about the, the let's call it the quality of the Band-Aid that's been offered. Well, there's no way this would ever work without the Band-Aid. You know, we had sort of a little micro- a situation, uh, and I don't mean to use that facetiously, but after 9-11 in New York City, um, they created a district which was surrounding the World Trade Center. And within that district, how they determined it, I have no idea, but in that district, they created a very similar situation specifically for those small businesses surrounding the World Trade Center after 9-11. But for the greater group, like us, 55 blocks north, or in California even, but more importantly, um, they provided SBA disaster loans. And without that, and so when someone says to me, well, how are you guys going to make it through this? It's called money. And if I hadn't gotten an SBA disaster loan in uh, 2001, we never would have been able to kept Michael's New York open. Santa Monica was less affected. But that infusion of money is the right program. People can say, well, it's this and it's that and it's going here and going there. Let me tell you something. The fastest way to resolve this is to take the heat off from everybody on the money. And that's the purpose of the the, uh, the, the government and the treasury uh, is to get that cash infusion. That's how the world works. That's what happened in every single bailout Every single crisis, 1987, I opened in New York right after the 1987 collapse in the middle of the worst real estate crisis there. And I was fortunate that we were uh, extremely well known, funny enough, in New York City by that time, uh, because for the 10 years of the 80s, everybody that from New York came out to L.A. ate my Michael Santa Monica, so they knew me immediately. And we happened to be in a fantastic location. Uh, and so we were able to ride that wave uh, uh, all the way up until the tech crisis, which was, what, 2000? That was fun. Uh, and in L.A., in the meantime, we had another crazy, uh, horrible recession that people sometimes forget about. Uh, but from 92 to 95, we had, you know, the riots starting out with the Rodney King verdict. We had the uh, fires in Malibu and Laguna. We had the earthquake uh, we had the complete collapse of the construction industry and the aerospace industry in that same time period. And we had, we sort of bookended with the, uh, with OJ Simpson on the run, uh, you know, in the car, the famous car chase. Um, and in, and in 95, sure enough, 30 months later, I did exactly what I did all along the lines. I brought in a new team. Because uh, it was devastating, I brought in Sang Yoon and uh, uh, David Rossoff, and we put together a program, the, the new Michaels, uh, uh, you know, internally, and we launched, and we just put the metal to the pedal, and, uh, and the economy was beginning to come back. We had one of the greatest runs from 1995 and through 2008. 
ever. And then, of course, what happened then? We had another recession with Lehman Brothers and uh, Bear Stearns and uh, the famous Bernie Madoff. Starting out in 2009 was, I mean, barely did everybody recover from that when we waltzed into this particular crisis. And so do you, I was going to ask you what you think. I mean, you started to talk about this, what it's going to take for the restaurant industry itself to survive. But it sounds like to me from listening to you, it's going to come down to kind of two things. One is, is the money available to help them bridge whatever giant gap it has to be? But it's also this baked in. How much does your restaurant, whether it's what it what it cooks, who runs it and particularly who manages it, how how able are they to to reinvent themselves to cope with whatever the present is? Well, that's 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 the number one beauty, I have to say. That's the the silver lining in a massive crisis. And again, you go back to two thousand nine. Two thousand nine, the world was, you know, everybody was devastated all over the United States. But guess what happened in two thousand nine? A very interesting thing. It was the beginning of the next generation of the Michael McCarty's. It was the young Americans who were 25 years old uh, at that time, and they had no constraints because guess what? You didn't need to spend $5 million building a restaurant, which is what was happening at the end of that big, huge bull run of restaurant building. Vegas had come in. People were building these $22 million restaurants, $15 million restaurants. The, the whole thing was like, it's just like the stock market. When you know when it reaches 30,000, it's too good to be true. Well, it's the same thing. When the, when, the, when the hotel developers, which again, in my day, nobody would ever go into a hotel. That was a kiss of death. But they're the ones with the money. Vegas, the casinos with the money. Everybody in the hotels and the developers created these magnificent things, which all collapsed at the end of 2008, which gave the door and opened the door to just like what I started. You go to a crappy neighborhood, but you know there's some good bones in that neighborhood, and you get a very inexpensive rent, and you don't really spend a lot of money on the decor. You don't like spend a lot of money on all of the things that were important up until that day. And you all you focus on is, guess what? Hospitality, food, and service. And that's what happened. I call it the Brooklynization. And it occurred. And it was a simultaneous sort of thing that occurred in Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, Brooklyn. I call it the Brooklynization because it sort of really started again the idea that you could go get some terrible little storefront in a strip mall and pay 800 bucks a month instead of 80000 which is where the rents were in those days. It gave this sort of go-ahead to all this young, creative, extremely creative people. So the crisis creates a door that is wide open, uh, and the timing of it, you know, timing is everything, uh, couldn't have been better. And, and that's why the explosive growth of what I now call the, you know, the new, new American restaurants, uh, and, 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 and coupled with the internet, because that's how... The, 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 you bring in all the ethnic foods and this growth occurred all over the world. You know, now we go to Italy where all of a sudden they have not just Northern Italian and Southern Italian, white sauce, red sauce. They got every single department has its own style of cooking. Same thing in Spain, same thing in Scandinavia, everything exploded. And, but the, the true thing was it starting in 2009 was the, the ability for the young mind 
to explore the creativity and to do exactly what you just said, which is where do we go from here? Well, nobody, the rules are all, you know, the rules are off. We can do whatever we want. So let's do it. And it was coupled with, I always said this in the very beginning, my success came because of three things, what we did and what the clients were there ready to embrace what we were doing. And we had a press that could spread the word. And, and that's those that trioka was so important. It continues to be exactly the same. Uh, and the only addition, the fourth estate of that is the Internet, because all of a sudden, I guess that's part of the press world. But with social media, uh, when I did my chicken and goat cheese salad in 1979, you know, it sort of had to quietly move over a period of time to get on menus all over the, the United States to the handful of places. Today, you put it on your Instagram. All over the world, people are creating whatever that cool dish is that just came online. Well, I think that's so inspiring that this is you you just laid out a whole game plan for how people can survive and how to think positively about what is a really, really terrible moment. So we're going to come right back. We'll take a break and we'll talk to Michael Moore about his positive perspective on the future and how he's built the longevity that he has. Stay with us. We'll be right back. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Welcome back. We're talking to legendary chef Michael McCarty about Michael's enduring legacy as a pillar of market-driven cuisine and a training ground for next-gen chefs. So I, while we're, we're going all the way on this journey back and forth through history, uh, which is really helpful, I wanted to take everyone back to a certain date in San Francisco, May 4th, 1983. So Michael, tell us what happened at the Stanford court that night and how did it change the course of American food? Well, what we wanted to do, and again, I go back to the original board of the American Institute of Wine and Food. We were based sort of vicariously in Santa Barbara, but really in San Francisco. Um, uh, Jim Nasikas, uh, who was a very close friend of James Beard, uh, owned the Stanford Court Hotel. And we held all of our board meetings there. And I flew to San Francisco every month. Uh, for our board meeting. And as I said, Julia Child, Dick Graff from Shalom Vineyard, Robert Mandavi, um, uh, Alice Waters. We had a really great group. And so we were focused on one thing, which is to take gastronomy and make it part of the university system. That's why Santa Barbara came in, well, because the, the chancellor there had given us uh, sort of the roadmap of how to do that. Because Julia had her winter house in Santa Barbara. 
in, in Montecito. So, so that was a, a, a wonderful time in those days of us uh, not only having a bunch of great wine and food all the time, uh, but, but it was a, a, a good growth period. So finally, as we began to develop the American Institute of Wine and Food, and believe me, it was difficult. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a whole nother story to how and where that was created and who was involved in, and what was the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. But suffice to say that we wanted to throw a celebration of regional American food paired with American wines. And that, that, and my job was to put this dinner together. Um, and I did a, uh, um, a, a, when I sat down to put together a list of regional American chefs, a, I can't tell you how difficult it was. And I mean, from James Beard, I, I found out about Larry Forgione, who I knew, but I meant, you know, I began to put together the regional chefs, Larry Forgione from New York. Um, we, we scoured the Midwest and James again suggested we speak to the London Chop House because there was a young chef there named Jimmy Schmidt. Um, one of my big uh, 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 clients uh, was uh, from Hallmark and they had a restaurant in uh, the Midwest in, in uh, Kansas City. And there was there was they Bradley. St- and they still do. One of the restaurants as old as uh, Michael's. Exactly. And Bradley was a young chef there. I mean, this is this is a long time ago. Uh, and then in San Francisco was the easy one because we knew everybody and Alice Waters, Jeremiah Tower and Mark Miller. And Jeremiah and Mark had sort of they've left, they moved on from Chez Panisse and they were creating their own style. In the case of Mark, who's beginning to pioneer new Southwest American, similar to the way that Jimmy and Bradley were doing um, new American, but with a, uh, you know, uh, a, a Midwest approach. And of course, Larry was doing, uh, you know, hardcore New York. Uh, but these were all chefs that were course based in French, based under the underlying, you know, the, 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 the pillars and the maxims of the, the Latin of the, of the cooking world at the time, France and French. Uh, and then in, uh, and then in Los Angeles, uh, my chef, Jonathan Waxman at the time, uh, uh, you know, he was the head chef at the time. We had quite an opening team there. I had Mark Peel, uh, Nancy Silverton, uh, Gordon Nacarado, um, Billy Flug, who was fantastic. He came from uh, Boston. He worked at uh, some great restaurants there. And um, uh, uh, Ken Frank, who was, again, a young chef out here in California. And and, and so I was pretty much almost scraping the barrel, but then I remembered meeting Ella Brennan. So I called Ella Brennan in, in New Orleans and I said, hey, who's down there that's doing it? And Paul Prudhomme. So that was the opening salvo. And again, that was the top of the top, the creme of the creme. They were the leaders beginning the, the, the whole revolution of new American food. And as again, some of them were based on various influences of mostly of their neighborhoods and where they were from and what the ingredients were going there. Everybody was going through and saying, what really grew here and how can we modernize it? Just the way the French chefs did at Nouvelle Cuisine. After the Nouvelle Cuisine in France, when that thing sort of moved past, but the beautiful thing about the Nouvelle Cuisine revolution was it was a revolution. It threw everybody off the path and said, okay, we can do whatever we want. But the most important part was after that was when the chefs in France embraced their regions where they came from. And they did the same thing we did in America. I have to say my America pioneered this. Um, 
again, there's thousands of stories that can talk about me bringing over Alain Dutournier, Guy Savoie, Michel Rostein, taking them to uh, to Texas for a, a, an American Institute of Wine and Food gastronomy in the middle, couple a year or two after the big dinner at the Stanford Court, and pairing them with Robert Del Grande, Stephen Piles, and Dean Fury. Now, think of that. These guys had never seen a jalapeno or dealt with uh, cilantro before. And there they cooked three meals together, all the six of them. It was fantastic. But back to Sanford Court. So we wanted to, again, just like Michael's restaurant, we wanted to create a unique experience. So uh, one of my oldest friends, a guy named Paul Gurian, who was a movie producer, uh, was also a food guy. Uh, this is before the word foodie existed. And he was one of my great travelers. We ate, we drank, we partied, we had a great time. And I used his skills. I said, I want to make a movie about this. And I want to set up the technology where we put wide screens in the dining room of the Stanford Court. And we put together a, a movie that uh, was played the entire four and a half hours of the event. So not only did we not only did we shoot the chefs, individual vignettes of each chef, we shot the, the winemaker uh, uh, and then they played together. And then the music was from that area and the art was from that area. So we had Julia uh, uh, with when we talked about the Midwest, she was uh, uh, narrating uh, uh, the the uh, the hog butcher, you know, the what do you call it? The. Uh, the great poem from Chicago. What's his name? Losing it. Oh well, yeah, you do. It's a, it's a, it's a, oh god. Well, we'll get that. You'll add that in later. The uh, <laughs> uh, at any rate, so that dinner we had four hundred and fifty people, uh, and it was really bring together everybody. Uh, Molly. Uh, she brought in the, instead of doing flower arrangements, we had her do vegetables. Uh, and it was phenomenal. So we had 45 tables of 10. In the middle of each table was a magnificent uh, display of fresh vegetables, fruit, everything. You couldn't believe it. Uh, the screens were up. And we put together this menu that really each item showcased that neighborhood that they came from. Um, and you have to see the video. I have a link that I could share later. That is, uh, uh fantastic. That would be great. We'd love to do he, that. Yeah. The link is the link. The, the link is it's an edited version. It's like 25 minutes, but it shows, for example, it shows when we did the Laura Chanel goat cheese, she was the first one to do goat cheese in Napa Valley, Sonoma. Um, and we paired her with Robert Mondavi's giant 19, uh, 74 Cabernet Sauvignon Reserve in Magnum. And the, the picture of the two of them, you know, him walking through with the goats, giving his little uh, spiel on, on the fantastic American wines, which are now in the company of the great wines in the world and seeing her goats and the cheese. And at any rate, so that dinner was sort of our big cook-off. And it was the only dinner, ironically, that was a, a dinner for James Beard that he actually was at because he passed away shortly, shortly thereafter. So uh, that was a fantastic moment. And I, I think that was a springboard that sort of, a lot of press were there, again, and, and it was a moment when people could sort of, in one room, see it all. And, and that was the beautiful. It was like you just binged 
New American Regional Food. And they called us California Cuisine only because it was where the beginning of, in my opinion, a formalization of regional food occurred. As I said now, not only every single state in the union has its own style of cooking. One of my great chefs, Roy Yamaguchi, when he left uh, LA, he moved to Hawaii and along with a handful of other chefs, but he really pioneered it, started new Hawaiian food. Uh, you know, every Florida, they call it new Flor- Floridian food. You know, everybody, Seattle, Oregon. I mean, and this is in those days, remember, not today, which we all know is explosive. But this was a long time ago when you had one chef, maybe two, that were Johnny Appleseeding it in these towns, in these communities. Um, you know, and, and this goes simultaneously, the thread that runs this, which was extremely important, as I go back to Laura Chanel in Sonoma County, goat cheese, is the farmers. You know, people talk about farm to table. Well, in our day, there were no farms. You know, we had to, I brought well, not, in- Not the kind of farms that you like sourcing from, you mean? Exa- exactly. There was, there were good, there was good meat. Uh, uh, we happened to have uh, a few farmers, uh, Jean Bertrand, who owned L'Hermitage, was my partner in our duck farm. And we we created the uh, the first foie gras and we made the 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 Muscovy Pekin hybrid called the mule duck, the moulard. And so you started the confit of the thigh and the breast and you used to grill the steak. You know, nobody had ever seen a magre like that, a breast of duck that was that large. You just throw on the barbecue. Um, and and it was, it was uh, uh, you know, Gary Carpenter, Carpenter Squab Ranch, just a unique oddity out of the world. Here's a guy, uh, Carpenteria, who had one of the great squabs. We grew rabbit, we grew things, but the, the produce was the most complicated. And that was a function. Uh, again, Alice started up in San Francisco, you know, reaching out to the local farmers. We did it big time here. We had a we had a breadbasket to beat the band here. We had Oxnard. We had the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I remember one of my first salads was San Fernando Valley greens because we found a, a farmer in the middle of San Fernando Valley. You can imagine this with the huge smog and this before catalytic converters. You know, I mean, it was insane. Uh, uh, and then we had the Imperial, you know, we had the, the Imperial Valley east of San Diego and we had uh, all of these areas. And, and through my first purveyor, uh, that I knew, but even before I owned the restaurant, we furnished seeds to a lot of these farmers. We convinced them that they could go further. They could do this. This is the beginning of a revolution. And again, once you get them to plan it, you got to create the market. And so that's why uh, shortly after we opened here in Santa Monica, we were able to launch the Santa Monica Farmers Market, which is, I think, I mean, time is going by, but I think it's 38 or 39 years old. Um, yeah, I think I read that's an amazing factoid that actually you opened Michael's, I think, two years before the the Santa Monica yeah. the farmer's market started. Right? And that and that was because we had that open mind of clients here, of people here, of customers that wanted this stuff. Uh, you know, Sandy Gooch, Mrs. Gooch's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kaplan. The predecessor to Whole Foods. Yeah. You know, and, and, yeah, yes, she sold Mrs. Gooch's which, to Whole Foods when Whole Foods was Whole Foods. Um, and, uh, Frida Kaplan, I mean, you know, she was a pioneer in this, uh, uh, getting these farmers to grow this stuff. And, you know, we just had a blast 
And, and, and the product and, and the, some of the results were great. Some of them weren't, but 99% of them were fantastic. And then the chefs started to explode. You know, uh, Mark Peel and Nancy Silverton went off to be the opening chefs at Spago couple, three years after I opened. Um, Ken Frank moved to Napa Valley. Uh, Gordon Nacarado and, and, and moved to Aspen. Um, uh, Jonathan Waxman moved to New York. Uh, as I said, Roy Yamaguchi moved to Hawaii. Uh, you know, again, just the, the word started to spread the, the, the love of the, of the idea of a new American restaurant regional started to spread and, uh, and everybody was off and running. And then the next thing, you know, uh, it was in place. Well, I think that that's, that's such a great encapsulation of both where you've been and how everything came together and that foundation that was laid at Stanford court for, you know, really the food revolution that came after that. So that that's and also... The, and, and the wine revolution. And the wine revolution. That was when you could count, uh, you know, a dozen to, to 20 uh, winemakers that, you know, were stopping. We had to, you know, we worked together with them, and some of them were more belligerent than others, to stop making, trying to make French wine. We don't want Bordeaux here. Stop trying to make the Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. And a lot of them were trying to do that. You know, a lot of them were trying to duplicate a Pinot Noir, only, except for Dick Graff. Nobody was really doing with Pinot Noir. It was the great Cabernet Sauvignon and the great white Burgundy. That's what people were trying to make, the great Bordeaux and the great Burgundy. And, and so that took a long time. But that's what happened in those 80s. They finally stopped trying to do that, and they started making their wine with their terroir. That go, We used to say to them, guys, we can make your wine taste better. And you can make our food taste better if we work together on this. And it, 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 it's this is a lot of the uh, Wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention to the little guys behind the uh, and girls behind the curtain. But the amount of effort it took and cajoling to get them to stop trying to make a wine that would stand up on a pedestal and say, yes, that's it. You know, it's better to have it in the big glass next to the Magre of Canard, for example, you see, made with a Cabernet Sauvignon reduction sauce with fresh black currants. You know, I mean, this is the beauty of it. And, and so a lot of that groundwork was done in those days, both food and wine, obviously. And so I wanted to ask you, given that history and given this really pivotal moment in time that we're in, it, I think for a lot of people right now, it's really hard to think about the future. There's so many unknowns. And so given all that you've lived through and been through and how many times you've started over as you took us through in the first half of those shocks, how are, how are you looking at the future and the future of Michael's in particular? Well, again, as I, you've, you've obviously gotten this from me, I am a big proponent and I've been through them. So I have a little bit of history in uh, these disasters. Uh, and I have a very interesting uh, phrase that I think really came to light and solidified for me, uh, sort of codified the approach after a disaster. It is when our entire neighborhood in 1993, our entire neighborhood burned down. We lost 475 homes in the 93 fire. In, in Malibu. Malibu. In Malibu. And, um, uh, and, and whereas everybody was distraught and everybody was freaked out, as they should have been, it was horrible. You lose your entire life. You lose this. You lose that. I mean, we lost every single thing. Uh, we reclaimed we nothing. Um, but I said to my two neighbors, we drove over the hill. We saw the three empty lots, you know, just a bunch of pads burnt to the ground, nothing left but a chimney. 
Um, and I said, guys, I know this is emotional. I've been through a couple of these. Um, leverage the disaster. And that is something that everybody will figure out one way or the other. Some can do it. Money is the only way you could really leverage it. And that's why it's so important that what the government does in the next coming months, uh, and it better be fast, but so far it looks like they're on the right track, it allows you to give yourself, take away the despair and allows your creativity to come back. And that's where you're going to see, uh, it'll be interesting to see a year from now, uh, what's really happened here. And of course that plays out to a lot of different components, like what happens with the coronavirus. Uh, but this is the time and it's the same thing I've said. I've already had my meetings with my management staff. They know me, my, my, my top people in New York city have been with me over 20 years, my executive chef, my general manager, Steve Millington, my general manager, Kyung Up Lim, my executive chef, Robin Wolf, my private party planner, uh, Danny Devella, Eris, Selena, the team, uh, they know they've seen me go through this in the 30 years there and, 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 and the top three in the last 20. And they know we can do this. And they know that this is an opportunity that is ripe for evolution again. We're back to where we where we are. You can't go sideways and you can't go back. It's got to be. No, forward. I think that's a great mnemonic to think about. And that is is actually a good thing to think about while you're still in it. And you don't know when you can move forward is to just keep thinking about that phrase of how do you leverage the disaster? So thank you. You got to leverage it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got to just stay in the game. As Muhammad Ali, who who booked my private room in Santa Monica every month with his family, he would always say, even no matter he, when he started sort of losing it a little bit, he would say, hey, Mike, uh, just don't get out of the ring. Stay in the ring. That was his advice. And he's That's right. That's an, another good one. All right. Let us know. Do you have a favorite memory or menu item from Michael's? What are you cooking at home to get you through the pandemic? Are you thinking about leveraging the disaster? Michael's going to tell us in a second what he's cooking. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know. Before we run out of time, I really want to get uh, Michael's Julia moment in. Now more than ever, we really think a Julia moment still lifts our spirit. We're going to take a quick break. Michael's going to come back and tell us his Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Michael, I, I, I'm looking forward to yours. What's your Julia moment? <laughs> well, it goes back to the first half of the 70s when I was uh, living in Paris. Uh, I was enrolled in the uh, hotel and restaurant school that you would go to if you were a young French uh, uh, teenager. I was a couple years older than they were, but uh, they accepted me. Uh, I fortunately had lived in France as a junior in high school, so I spoke French. So that, otherwise, I never would have gotten into the hotel and restaurant school. But I had originally gone to Paris to be to 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 complete all the courses of the Cordon Bleu, and that was the most fascinating experience. Um, so seventy two and seventy three and four, um, 
there I was, and it was a riot. At the same time, I was going to the Academy du Vin with Steven Spurrier. I don't know if you've all seen the movie uh, The Bottle Shock, but Alan, Rick- Alan Rickman played my teacher, Steven Spurrier. And uh, so it was a fascinating time. The Leal was still there. Uh, the, 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 all of the butchers and the seafood and the produce and everything was there. So it was a wonderful time to live in Paris. Um, and I one day went to, uh, you know, and I, I one day went to school to the Cordon Bleu and there I am, I'm talking to Madame Brassard, who was a feisty lady, you know, she was pretty fierce, uh, little tiny woman. And, uh, but the look, you know, and they give you the, the, the side glance, you know, I mean, she was very fierce, but she was impressed with me because I spoke French. If I think I'd been, if I didn't speak French, I think she would have been a little tougher. But one day I'm standing there and, and in walks Julia Child. And I didn't know who Julia Child was. So Madame Brassard explains to me who Julia Child is and how she was an early pioneer at the Cordon Bleu and how she had written the books and, uh, uh, and explain briefly the story in about two seconds. And that's the most she'd ever spoken to me in, you know, a well, long Well, I love that. I've never heard that Ms. Madame Brassard gave Julia any credit for what she accomplished afterwards. So that that's a very fascinating nugget. That's exactly right. And I think that was sort of like the breakthrough. She Because she said to me, she said, you should really get to know her. And so I said to Julia, I said, Julia, Michael McCarty here, you know, this is, uh, I'm, you know, I'm 19 years old and, uh, I say to her, uh, so as I usually would do, I said, well, what are you doing for lunch? And she said, nothing. So I said, great, let's go for lunch. So my Julia moment is very simple. I walked out the door. We went around the corner to a restaurant that she uh, had frequented before. And we sat down for lunch. And four hours later. (laughs) Because you're complete kindred spirits. Hours later, I dragged myself out of that down to the metro and went home and went to take a nap. And she, she, she held right up there with a young nineteen-year-old teenager, and we had such a blast. Uh, and we kept ordering everything. We kept drinking everything. We were like a uh, 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 like like some kind of odd event performance art piece that was going on and the the little bistro owner and his wife they sort of got into it so if we forgot something they sent it over and uh and and unfortunately i had as good an appetite as her because let me tell you something that was wild uh, and and we became lifelong friends after that and, and shortly thereafter uh i saw her uh again in 79 when we opened um and uh, it was the beginning of the American Institute of Wine and Food. And that's when I became very close with her. We became quite a, 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 a good t- team with our other board of directors at the time to really, really mutually put together uh, uh, the whole idea of where we were going to go with gastronomy. And um, so I never forgot that. And I remember uh, one of my last, me, in fact, the last time that we ever saw her, my wife and I drove up from Malibu to Montecito. We brought in uh, a bunch of uh, food. It was springtime. So I, uh, she was living in her little condo. She couldn't move. She had both her knees had been replaced and one got infected. It was terrible. It was this and that, that. And so we cooked lunch for her. And I remember I brought the, the white asparagus from Holland, the first Dutch white asparagus of the season. We had shad roe. 
which I knew she would love. Uh, and uh, the, the nurses came around and were very tough. They said, just can I take you aside, Michael? I said, yes. He says, under no circumstance or give her any wine. None. Because she has physical therapy in the afternoon. And I said, well, okay, sure. And so she said to me, she said, they tell you not to give me any wine? I said, yes. And she said, well, forget that. And so we, again, we, we had <laughs> four hours great, later. Yeah. Yeah. She missed her class and, uh, but we had such a good time and she died shortly thereafter. Um, and, but it was such a wonderful time for my wife, Kim and I to spend time with her. She adored Kim. Kim was a painter and, uh, she really, uh, uh, loved powerful women and my wife is one of them. And so it was, uh, it was a great bookend meeting her in Paris and uh, ending up in Montecito. Yeah, it kind of sums up the the Michael story that you were telling too. Well, thank you very much for joining us today amongst this really difficult moment and giving us some good cheer and some good wisdom. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Thanks very much yourself. Appreciate it. And thanks everyone for listening. For all the news from Michael McCarty and Michaels, follow them on Instagram. It's at Michaels Santa Monica, or you can go to michaelssantamonica.com. Keep up with us and our ongoing efforts to help everyone cope with COVID-19 pandemic. It's at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, and it's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Laura Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>